All right, welcome to the Mammoth Games Inc. podcast. I am your host, uh, Filter Cord. Uh, just Austin here today. Uh, Jay, unfortunately, has to continue to work remotely, like I think a lot of us are doing during the pandemic here. So today we are talking to Robert Mariner Dodds of Dragon Turtle Games, Studio <laughs> Circa, and Dodds Corp. Yes, hello. Um, quite a lot of people. You can hear me, right? There's no audio problems. Uh, yeah, currently everything's looking good. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, what, what a great introduction uh, where I mess up my own microphone. So, yeah, it's great to be here. That's uh, very on brand yeah. for us. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, I apologize for my audio quality to anyone listening. My uh, good quality microphone is quarantined a mile away from me now at the, at the Dragon Server Games offices. Yeah. All right, so um, I think... Uh, probably most famously now um, looking at uh, Carbon 2185. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was a big uh, Kickstarter moment. I don't know how I initially got turned on to the Kickstarter, but I definitely was on that initial Kickstarter wave. I got my, uh, you know, black and gold uh, limited cover and a uh, hard cover and everything. So that is um, a great. Yeah, you know, I really like it. I like to have the physical books anyways, but. So that was we, one I had to get. Yeah, the limited covers. We, we only made 700 of those. Damn. Um, there's only 70 left. You know, less than 70. I'm keeping nine for myself. <laughs> They're not, uh, that's only because they come in boxes of nine. So, okay, like, so oh, you just grabbed a box. Yeah. Ship me one box. You know. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's like 61 left up for sale. And that's it. We're never reprinting those. Right. Um, so they're on our website if people want to buy them, but there's really not many left. Um, and I love them. I love them. Yeah. I even got like, uh, it, it's, I didn't want to do video because I didn't want to be uh, vain, but uh, I do have the poster up on my wall too. Oh, do you? It's, it's Insight. Yeah. My I had, that was such great artwork by uh, Klaus Whitman, uh, yeah. who uh, you might know as being one of the concept artists on uh, The Witcher 3. And That's Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah. Klaus actually helped design Siri in The Witcher. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I can kind of see that. He's got his chops. For sure. Um, yeah, he's that's actually, definitely... Go ahead. He's working on the new uh, Batman film with uh, Robert Pattinson. Okay. I keep trying to get information from him, but he won't tell me anything. <laughs> It'd probably be easier to get info out of Robert Pattinson. Yeah, he's a known well, leaker, I think. If I knew him... I mean, don't all British people know each other? Um, is he British? <laughs> isn't he? Wait a minute. I don't know. Hold on. We'll, we'll fact check that. <laughs> He's got an um, American accent in Twilight. I mean, everybody, every British person can do an American accent. I was going to say, he is in Twilight, right? I've got the right person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not kind of my, my kind of vampire stuff is in Twilight. I'm much yeah. before, like, uh, uh, interview English with actor. Uh, he's originally from London. Okay, so pretty close to me. <laughs> yeah, come on. There's a chance that you've, you've probably walked past him at some point. Speaking of English actors, uh -oh. uh, Daniel Radcliffe, his grandmother was uh, an act. Well, was one of my acting coaches when I was a child. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know his parents are like uh, producers or something, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, like one of them is in business. production, one's a talent agent or something. Something like that. But his grandma was a lovely woman. I um, I don't want to say she's a, she's a bad uh, drama uh, uh -oh. instructor because I think she did a wonderful job. But 
my acting was not as good as Daniel Radcliffe's in that first Harry Potter movie. And I think we can all agree that that wasn't his finest work. Yeah. <laughs> so I never, I never went further than that. But I did Must be genetic. Know, yeah, I did know his grandmother. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah. That kind of is like uh, my wife actually grew up um, like in the same town as uh, Haley Williams, the lead singer of Paramore. Um, if you remember them, they were on Twilight. A lot of Twilight uh, callbacks. That's what yeah, we're known for. I do remember. Um, Fun fact about Haley Williams: one of my friends at school told him when he was dating a girl called Haley Williams, and we were like, "Yeah, right," because uh, he was a big Paramore fan. And then it turns out his girlfriend really was called Haley Williams. Yeah, just totally different Haley Williams. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> I'm sure, a super common name. Yeah. Yeah, she actually yeah. dressed like her and everything. She was a big fan. Okay, that's a little concerning. um yeah so um you know we've we've kind of been uh talking off and on a little bit so i'm like fully engaged in just completely getting stuck in like weird little you know plot holes here and there but uh um backstage yeah the backstage it's funny because me and my uh normal co-host we usually like uh we'll we'll like go live and just kind of hang out for like 10 or 15 minutes on uh facebook live or whatever yeah, and it's just we just talk about such weird, totally unrelated <laughs> stuff. It's just like completely waste everybody's time. So yeah. it's exciting. I hope I'm sure everybody's used to listening to this. Well, right I'll try and focus up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I need somebody to control me. Um, well, I'm not like a good producer in, in that uh, audio producer, so it's my I, I go off tangents all the time, so I'm yeah. going to try and focus it. Okay, so um, yeah, I mean, right before we started, I mean, I, I think it's interesting to kind of talk about some of the more like business side stuff. And that's something that we kind of try to focus on. Um, so you were saying that um, you have basically, you know, I introduced all three, um, uh, I guess, company names yeah. that you're kind of associated with. Yeah. And you were talking about how some of those structures are split up and like, you know, for business and like ownership purposes and yeah. things like that. So, go so I, I own all three. Uh, I didn't used to own all of the shares in Dragon Soda Games, but I do now. Um, I own Studio Circa, Dodds Corp, and Dragon Soda Games uh, Limited. Mm. And uh, Studio Circa and, and Dragon Soda Games are publishers. You know, uh, they 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 pay for the books to be made. They right. pay the the writers and they pay the artists and they pay the princes and they they advertise it and they send it out to people. That's the role of publishers is to, to be the bank essentially, right? Um, and to have the connections and the reputation. Um, Dodds Corp is the development company. That's actually just um, it's my kind of trading name mm-hmm. for when I do freelance work. It's just Dodds Corp. And Dodscorp owns all the copyright to anything I write, and I license it to the publishing companies. Right. That way, if I lose um, control for whatever reason of either company, I just have to wait out the contracts, and then I get Carbon 2185, and I, I own it. You know, um, and that was recommended to me by Jim Ward from TSR. Um, oh. Because... Jim Ward was a close personal friend of Gary Gygax. Yeah. Uh, who famously sold the rights of Dungeons & Dragons to TSR and then lost control of TSR. Yeah. So him and his family lost control of the Dungeons & Dragons brand, even though he created it. Uh, and Jim saw this happen, and so he advised me to do that. Um, and it was really great advice. So yeah. thanks, Jim. 
if you're listening. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of interesting, too, because, again, just kind of talking about, like, callbacks. Um, I don't have anything else about Robert Pattinson on that. But um, Dave Arneson of mm-hmm. Dungeons & Dragons, again, uh, like, I, I think he was behind a lot of uh, some more of the, like, mechanical stuff yeah, um, in Dungeons & Dragons. And, again, he also, like, simultaneously, everybody involved in Dungeons & Dragons, every single person got ripped off. <laughs> yes. Um, so he, like, was... Uh, pretty angry about uh, some of the ways that the business went. Well, and he actually ended up founding um, the game design program at Full Sail that I went and got my degree at. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, uh, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax were brilliant game designers. Yeah. They were not known for their business skills. Uh, and I think they were too trusting. Yeah. Um, and that Mike. was really when yeah, they, they just they trusted people. Yeah. Uh, which is usually a very good skill to have, but not when it comes to uh, mostly million dollar businesses. Right. And I, I think there is something to say too of like, you know, in the same in the same um, chance, I think that, uh, there's a lot of people that are, you know, they would want to create maybe a campaign setting, a one off, um, something like that, and they don't really care if they have the creative control. Mm-hmm. And um, or even like you know, even if their name is on it in the future. Yeah. Um, and there's definitely like something to be said for that of like, you know, I just made this. It's fine. Like it's nothing yeah. super special to me, but I mean, if it is special to you, you have to hold on to it because. Well, I mean, um, the yeah. first few things I made, the, the Dragon Drop Adventures, which were made by Dragon Saddle Games. Right. Dragon Saddle Games is the copyright of those. I don't. Yeah. The company does. But Carbon was different. It was bigger in scope. Mm-hmm. Um and I thought it had more potential, and it did have more potential. Uh, you know, I got very lucky with Carbon 2185. So I took extra precautions. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, um, I think, the third, uh, at least, person that we've talked to that kind of was able to make their name kind of in, a, in the Kickstarter space. Um, yeah. We also talked to um, uh, Ronaldo, who's one of the guys that worked at the Brazilian game studio. Um, uh, Behold, that made uh, like pen and paper, uh, what well, Knights of Pen and Paper, and they made like Chroma Squad. Okay. Um, and he, like Chroma Squad was really able to take off yeah. through um, Kickstarter, and he I mean, kind of accidentally. Kickstarter like, is so fantastic. Yeah, I mean Kickstarter obviously right now going through probably a weird time as tabletop is it's mm. extremely hard to uh, create like uh, to manufacture, I guess. Yeah, that's the problem. Um, with China um, out of I mean, commission, yeah. All of the freelancers, uh, we use a lot of freelancers at Studio Circle and Dragon Soda Games. They're all still working. So you can still produce content. Right. But the problem is you're not selling as much because right. you're not selling at conventions, which is where a hell of a lot of money comes from. And you can't manufacture physical products. You know, um, on Carbon 2185, I think like 70% of our money from the campaign came from sales of the physical book. Mm-hmm. You know, which if we were to do it today, we wouldn't be able to put that up. We wouldn't be able to sell this book as part of it. Right. Because all the factories are shut. Right. And that's just the way it is at the moment. But I mean, for people starting out and doing PDF only stuff, um, now's a great time because people are looking for content. If you can promise a fast delivery and deliver on it, like a few weeks, you know, or like as soon as the campaign ends or something like that. People will back it because people are looking for content right now. Yeah, for sure. A lot of uh, I don't want to say 
free time? Because I know a lot of people are still working remotely and a lot of people, I wouldn't yeah. consider your normal work time after you've been laid off to be free time necessarily. No. No. Uh, it's like uh, mental health uh, decline time. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, there's definitely like, I, I think um, a lot of people are probably going to get into like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that for the first time right now, just kind of playing with their friends online just to have some like social contact. Well, yeah, we, um, you mentioned that you were in the initial wave of the Kickstarter. We kind of saw kind of um, four main waves of sales for Carbon 2185. We saw the first mm -hmm. wave, which was during the campaign. Then we had, once we opened pre-orders, we saw another wave of, of new players and backers. Um, and then we saw a third once we put it up for general sale. And right. now we're seeing a fourth because of this pandemic. We're seeing a, a, a lot of people buying the game online. Uh, our online sales have increased quite a lot, um, which doesn't mean we're not struggling. I, all the publishers are struggling because... Right. Most people don't know the economics behind this, but when, when you're publishing, most of your money comes from Kickstarter, you know, like 80% odd. Um, then you make about 15% of your money from conventions, sometimes even more, you know. Um, yeah. Like I know some publishers, I'm not going to name them because I'm going to be talking about numbers, but I know a publisher that, that made, uh, uh, you know, 100,000 pounds on their Kickstarter campaign for a new RPG. Then they went to the UK Games Expo and they made £50,000 in three days selling that RPG. Wow. So, I mean, and there, there's no UK Games Expo this year. And there's no Essence yeah. Spiel, which is a big one in Germany. All the big conventions that people were banking on aren't happening. So everyone in the industry is struggling. Yeah. And although online sales have increased, that's only a very small fraction of our total sales. Right. Yeah, and that so, was something that we had kind of talked about ahead of time, too, that, you know, um, uh, one of the other people that we've uh, talked to, Ian Moss, also has done a lot of Kickstarter stuff with tabletop card games, uh, yeah. party games, couple RPG products. And then, you know, it was kind of like, well, you know, me, just as like a hobbyist, I've released some stuff on like uh, DMs Guild or like Drive Through RPG, just to be uh -huh. more, you know, platform agnostic, I guess. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's like for somebody who is not, you know, not working freelance, not working with any kind of company, not working with any kind of IP, just, mm -hmm. you know, in my case, going through just the open, uh, what, the open gaming license for the, uh, for DMs. Yeah, yeah, um, so it's like, that's great for hobbyists or whatever. And then I sell, you know, if I give away, a hundred copies that, you know, people just pay what they want and they select zero. And then I get like, you know, 20, 30 bucks for it in mm -hmm. a year or whatever. That's, you know, that's a free game on steam or whatever. Yeah. So, but like when you're actually doing it as a business, yes. um, that's just, <laughs> it's absolutely not feasible. No, it's not. Um, we were number one bestseller for five weeks, I think, or four weeks on drive for RPG. Common 2185 was. And Drive for RPG has the most traffic of anyone. Right. So we were the number one seller on the most traffic site. We made less money on Drive for RPG than we did in the first 48 hours of our Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. Because I think that's just the economics of the industry. People back on Kickstarter and people buy at conventions, but they don't do very much else online. You know, they might yeah. buy on Amazon, 
But really, that's where all your money is going to come from is Kickstarter campaigns and conventions. And I mean, we've lost we've lost conventions for this year at least, right? Because uh, they'll take place in the summer and they're not happening now. Um, and you know, we potentially have lost some of the conventions from next year as well. So it's a tough time for the industry. It's a tough time for every industry, really, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. But it's good that we're all in this together, and. Um, I think it's really going to shift the way things are done. For example, we are doing um, a solo adventure, a solo mission, mm-hmm. which you can play on your own without a group. And the reason we're doing that is because of the lockdown. We had no plans ever to do that. But yeah. now we have, and it's being edited as we speak, and it's really fantastic. You know, so I, I hope that there's going to be a lot more uh, development on virtual tabletops mm-hmm. uh, and solo play uh, missions and adventures. Yeah, those are definitely things we've been we, like we've already been looking at. Okay, what is there other than Roll Twenty? And we've been looking at like tabletop simulator and stuff like that. But yeah, I definitely think tabletop is one as well. Yep, yep. Um, I definitely think that we could see some good, um, it, even like innovation in mechanics. Yeah, because um, I, I seem to recall that uh, one of the big spikes in kind of just the general, you know, physical tabletop game industry, uh, a big spike was after 2008. Yes. Where a lot of people suddenly they didn't have the choice of having like a kind of steady office job or whatever. And then they were like, they take risks. Right. So, again, like kind of like you were uh, saying before, where. Um, you know, economics is something that you're very interested in and something that definitely had a lot of influence on carbon Mm -hmm. Um, in in the same way that somebody who used to work in economics that got laid off and now has free time might work that in or somebody who, you know, any like somebody who worked manufacturing might work some kind of, you know, like something like we saw the, you know, Steam game or, you know, Epic or whatever, uh, Factorio. Yeah. Just like, okay, how do you make an efficient pipeline? Well, we... um... It's interesting, actually. I started Dragon Turtle Games out of desperation. Mm-hmm. You know, I had lost my job in uh, late 2015. I was working as a, a web a web designer, and the company went under. Not because of my web designs, although they weren't great. Well, we uh, don't know that, yeah. Yeah, we don't know that wasn't why. <laughs> it may have been a contributing factor because I was head of the department, and I was not very good at it. I yeah. uh, talked my way into that job. Yeah, that's. I, I think that's a general uh, company. Uh, that's kind of a bad sign. Yeah, right. Company going down. Yeah. Yeah. The the the, the manager of the department didn't know how to do web design. Right. Uh, was just making it up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we went. The company went under, and I lost my job. And I they had only two months pay as well. So although I'd been working for two months, I didn't get paid for it. And then I lost my job, and it was almost Christmas time. Damn. And I was out of money. Uh, but I was still playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, 5th edition had only just come out. Everyone was on the hype train, you know. Um, And I just thought it was the best tabletop game I'd ever played in my life. Um, And I stand by that. I really think it is one of the best uh, for what I needed and what my friends needed at the time. And we were all very, you know, either unemployed or looking for work or uh, uh, in minimum wage jobs, part-time jobs, that sort of thing. And I started dragon turtle games because i didn't have any money uh, but what i did have was a background in design 
and I thought I, I thought of myself as a pretty good dungeon master. So I just typed up some of the sessions I had ran and made them for a more general audience. And mm-hmm. uh, put it on Kickstarter and advertised it and followed all these advertising guides you can find online and spoke to a few people that had successful campaigns. And I made enough money. Uh, well, I made more money in, in that campaign. This was a year after I lost my job at this point. I'd been looking for work the whole time. I made more money during that campaign than I had in the whole 12 months before it. Wow. Not, I didn't make a huge amount of money, but I didn't have anything before. And that's where we started. And I think we're going to see a few people in similar situations now where people have lost their jobs. And they're like, well, I might as well give this a chance. Yeah, and it's definitely like... Um... I think if you're somewhere like this is definitely something that I kind of struggle with. And I talk about, you know, my, my job and my working conditions a lot on probably too much, probably more than, you know, people would prefer me to. But um, when you're in like a, a relatively safe, relatively good paying, relatively good benefits job, it is really hard to justify endangering that by doing anything. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I was able to get up uh, uh, in the morning and work uh, eight hours a day on this adventure and this campaign and right. starting Dragon Tattle Games. And you can't do that if you have a job. Right. You can't work full time doing another job if you've already got one. Exactly. And it's, and, you know, so there's like multiple layers of, I guess, kind of ways that people are held back in some ways. Um, yeah. And then there is definitely a difference between, you know, uh, hey, I thought it'd be cool if you could play D&D as a sentient cactus. So here's my <laughs> like one page rules of how you do that. And that's yeah. that's very different than, you know, I type that up maybe in, an, in two afternoons or something. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like you said, doing 40 hours a week or more, um, like huddling down and making a specific adventure that's set in a specific world that has certain rules that might be unusual and there's named characters that have certain ways that they behave and it is just it's on a different scale well i mean you also have it's the writing style is completely different when i was doing my own campaigns i would write just the the box text the read aloud text and then i would have basic notes for myself yes you have to make it accessible for anyone that picks it up and reads it You know, they have to be able to pick it up and read it and understand exactly what you mean. A lot of people do that when, when they submit stuff to me, uh, amateurs uh, or new guys in the industry. They will, uh, they will write the box text and read it loud bit, and then they'll just have notes for the GM. And that's not really, you can't do that because yeah. it's uh, anyone can write notes, you know? <laughs> uh, well, not only that, but uh, on, on the opposite, coming from the opposite direction of that, anyone can be a DM including somebody who really probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So it doesn't... Some people have said to me, you know, I've been DMing for 20 years. I must be good at writing. Mm. And then the stuff they've written is worse than people who have never DMed. Right. Like my last hire, um, you know, at Dragon Turtle Games, he had never ran a session of any tabletop games. Mm-hmm. But he had played them, and he was a good writer. And it was as simple as that. For sure. I mean, I've seen, you know, hundreds of movies, but for some reason, my student film project that I filmed on my phone uh, isn't getting picked up. So I don't really know what the issue is there. That's Yeah, that's exactly that's that's such a great metaphor saying like, you know, I could be a director because I've seen a thousand movies. Yeah. You know, because I love movies. Um, It's not really the same skill set. No. So being a GM and writing 
publishable adventures is totally different as well. Yeah. Because you have to write for a very broad audience. Did you, um, again, as you were doing that transition from, you know, performer to, um, I don't want to say director because that's not right, but, you know, uh, as a, de- a descriptive, um, yeah. you know, using the book as a teacher mm-hmm. rather than as, you know, as a guide rather than as, here's what my DM said last week. Yeah. Um, did you use like some of the official um, like wizards adventures to kind of model off of like uh, what that's uh, exactly Lord of the Dragon right. Queen and I had uh, Princess of the Apocalypse. Yep. I had Lord of the Dragon Queen and I had Lost Minds of Fandelva. And I would whenever I wrote anything, you know, the read aloud or the yeah. GM text, I would read uh, sections from those adventures. Mm-hmm. To see the way they phrased things, the language they used, how many words it is roughly, you know, what information they gave, what information they didn't give. And I would use that as like a framework because at the time, I didn't know anyone else in the industry. I didn't know how big the industry was. I didn't have anyone on Facebook or anything like that. It was just me and my friends on Facebook. And I was just writing all this stuff, uh, not really knowing anything. So I took the official books and I read them and I reread them and I. I compared them to my work and I saw what I was writing and what they were writing and the phrases I was using and the phrases they were using. And I tried to kind of see what they were doing and understand why they were doing it and uh, try and translate that to what I wrote. And the first one I released was Dragon Drop Adventures 1. It was just called Dragon Drop Adventures because I didn't know there'd be a sequel. Um, right. It only got five-star reviews. You know. Wow. Um, I think, you know, looking back, I'm very proud of it still. And that was four years ago. Yeah. Um, that's definitely something that I think, um, you know, kind of breaking things down per edition, I guess. Um, the, the ones I got really into were 3.5 and then fifth. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I just pretend that nothing, uh, you know, came out in 2011 or whatever the <laughs> I play a launch date of fourth right. was. Uh, yeah, I got I I picked up some Pathfinder books for sure. I don't think I've ever actually gotten into that, but um, I like Starfinder. Yeah, but um, in I think a big difference between uh, three point five and fifth is kind of the um, I guess the some of the ideas behind how to roll things out. Like mm-hmm. three point five was um, if we give them a Bible, you know, they will memorize every word. Yeah. And like they put out, I mean, I had, you know, probably a hundred books of 3.5 and like they had a specific, you know, hardcover 300 page book for every character class, for every yeah. type of background. <laughs> there was a book about how arcane magic worked. And then there was a book about how divine magic worked. And there was a book about how nature magic worked. And they just, uh, you know, they had some people that were really just barfing words. Like, yeah every like design meeting they ever had was codified into a new book. And, um, in fifth edition, they, they kind of, you know, cut back the weeds. They got back to basics and they said, okay, here's our, you know, our typical classes that everybody comes to expect or typical races. Everybody wants to see. Mm -hmm. And then from there, they, a lot of their supplemental material has been world building rather than rule building. Yeah. Um, they've, most of what they release is, They've done the typical stuff of like, okay, Volo's Guide to Monsters is kind of like a Monster Manual 2, plus describing a lot of the monsters and like their habitats and lairs and things like yeah. that. 
And then a lot of their other stuff are like quests. Or like quests. Well, I mean, we're doing a similar thing because I think that works really well. Yeah. What the industry the industry has changed as as times change and demographics change. Um, back with three point five Pathfinder, people wanted splat blocks. Splat block. <coughs> Sorry. Splat blocks. Uh, splat books. <laughs> And they wanted new rules, and they wanted new classes, and they wanted new races, and, they, right. uh, and all of this stuff. And they wanted... Uh, I know people with libraries of 3.5 and Pathfinder books. Right. You Because know? um, there's rules for everything. But it's so hard to keep it balanced. Um, and it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. When I first played Pathfinder, I was so completely overwhelmed. You know? that I had people sat next to me trying to explain it to me, and I was like, there's too many options. You know, I think in Pathfinder 1, there's 90 feats in the core book. Yeah. You know, uh, it's just too much to choose from. It's overwhelming. Uh, it's confusing. And people like things streamlined. You know? Yeah, for sure. I think that also, to design a simpler game that works is harder than to design a complicated game. Well, yeah, that's where you can look at things like um, like the Fate books yes. are very much built on, like, we're going to give you the absolute barest minimum to work yeah. with. Yeah, know? well, I mean, it, it's harder to design games that way. Yeah. And there's more skill in designing a game that's simpler and streamlined rather than one that's wordy and got all these rules and, uh, yeah. and all this stuff. It's actually uh, harder to make a simpler game. Like, if you look at uh, Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition, and Tunnels and Trolls, which was released, you know, six months later uh, by Kenson Andrew. Um, Tunnels and Trolls was a better designed game. And it was a lot simpler. Uh, but the audience at the time wanted complicated stuff and they wanted crunch. Because right. they were war gamers, they were former war gamers. Now, yeah. if the two games were released now, with modern artwork and, you know, phrasings and whatnot... Tunnels and Trolls will do a lot better than Dungeons and Dragons. But they're not released now. They were released in the 1970s. Yeah, this is definitely interesting because that, that kind of draws um, comparisons to, again, um, talking about the both the cyberpunk setting and then also literally, you know, cyberpunk from uh, Artalsorian Games. Mm -hmm. um, we actually went and picked up the most recent, I think, second or third edition of cyberpunk like cyberpunk 2012 or whatever um, 2012 was the first one okay so we had the one after that 2020 we mm, yeah we had 2020 yeah that was the popular one um and even it, it's really not that old it's like late 90s right or early 2000s um it, 2020 is actually quite old i think it's 1980s oh, is it okay all right they did My, that. i can't remember all of them uh i should i should know. well I mean, some oh. of the stuff's hard to track, too. Yeah, Cyberpunk 2020 was 1990, sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, even looking at something like that, like, it's already so archaic to try to get something like that to work compared to, uh, we played a game of Apocalypse World and had a ton of fun with it. Mm -hmm. Apocalypse World is like a pocket-sized, uh, you know, 100-page book of rules. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. And, uh, you know... Okay. Apocalypse was really good. Have you played uh, Cyberpunk Red yet? Not yet. I know the Quick Start thing is out, so, and they just ex they just released something else, right? 
it uses the interlock system, which is pretty much the same core mechanics of Cyberpunk 2020. Okay, it's alarming. Yeah, it's not too modern, but oh, it's, it's okay, got a so, modern presentation. Yeah, they've also um, recently released the uh, Witcher role-playing game. Yeah, that uses the same system. And I know that fans were pissed. Yes. That it's like, dude, this is archaic. Yeah, it uses exactly the same system as Cyberpunk. Right? Um, not to talk shit, obviously, I'll have. Uh, no, I, it, it's a fantastically yeah. designed system. It is what it is, right? But it is a 1990s system. Right. And it's rather than a new system. Right. And then that, that also kind of relates. <laughs> uh, it, it reminds me a lot of like the Battletech games. Yes. Yeah. That's like, or, you know, I tried to get into Warhammer Fantasy recently. Uh-huh. And it's like, I don't want to roll 700 dice for every attack. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't have that kind of real estate to work with. I found Cyberpunk 2020 and even Shadowrun, the newest version of Shadowrun, yeah. too complicated, too Fifth. archaic. Um, and that's why I, I made Carbon, because I wanted to play a Cyberpunk game that was simple and easy and yeah. modern design. The, the fact that you may actually have been able to one-up uh, cyber, uh, yeah, Cyberpunk Red before it even came out is pretty impressive. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure that they, they've got a, a huge team of designers working on it. You know, uh, nine... They also have, I mean, CD Project uh, yeah. input. They've got, they got a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, big budget. Um, well, they've got some real experts too. So I mean, it, I, I know that a lot of the stuff they put out so far is pretty early, mm-hmm. um, and it's not like final, you know, release stuff. But that is kind of alarming. That I had a rumor, and I don't know if it's true, and I'm sure someone will come into the comments of this podcast and say it's not true. But I had a rumor um, from someone who worked at uh, Artel Sorian. I'm not going to name names. But someone who worked at Artisorian told me that the original plan for Cyberpunk Red was for the core rulebook to be black and white with some splashes of red throughout, like Sin City. I kind of like that. But when they saw Carbon 2185 blowing up, they realized they needed full color art. Mm-hmm. And they got rid of all that art and they commissioned new stuff. Now, that's, that's good for artists. A lot of artists got employed for that. I'm not sure if it's true. I'm not sure if we had that much influence on them. Uh, but I know that before, back in December, before we even launched the campaign, Art House Orion were aware of Carbon 2185. Mm. And during the campaign itself, they tweeted about it very positively, saying, pick it up and use Carbon 2185 with the Night City source book from uh, Cyberpunk to play oh, wow. in Night City, but with a more accessible system. See, if you would have made... A couple of phone calls. You could have had the official Cyberpunk game. <laughs> well, I don't think. I, I think uh, Mike Mike Pondsmith and his son Cody are working on it, so I don't think. Yeah, they, they are. <laughs> they, they, I don't think he would have given it up. It's like a family uh, family yeah. business. Yeah. I think his wife as well uh, yeah. runs runs our sort of, sorry in the business. She side. does the business stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't. I don't think they would have given it up. I don't know. You could have found a cousin and got married in or something. Mm, possibly. Possibly. So um, that, that's, that's definitely uh, become, uh, yeah, Robert Mariner Dodds Dash Pondsmith. Yeah, Mariner Dodds Pondsmith. Easy to remember. Just keep, I mean, you're still like miles behind Spanish speakers in number of names. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I think we got a good um, kind of talking about your background, some drag and drop stuff. 
um, Studio Circo still kind of getting booted up. Have you announced anything in particular with that that you're going to be working on or just kind of conceptual? We haven't announced anything officially yet, but we are working on something uh, that I've actually been working on a project for, uh, since 2018. Okay. Um, summer of 2018, I started working on a project um, and it never saw the light of day. It was a campaign setting for fifth edition and I never ended up doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. And now I am reimagining that, um, okay. you know, with new artwork and a new kind of uh, uh, world. And I'm, I'm working on that and I'm hoping to get some, some great people involved in that. Um, Darren Pierce, uh, who worked with me on uh, the London Sourcebook for Carbon 2185, mm-hmm. he's interested in, in joining me on this one. Um, he also wrote for the Doctor Who role-playing game and the Judge Dredd role-playing game. Oh, wow. Okay. So he, he's a really great designer, and he's really excited about the project. But I can't say anything at the moment. Right. But art's being made, and stuff's being written, and we have about mm, seventy pages on that already. Awesome. Um, so yeah, I guess um, we have like a little document here that we're looking at with questions and stuff. So um, can I ask like? It seems like, from what we've heard so far, that a lot of your, I guess, some of your. Um, a lot of it comes from your experience as a dungeon master. Yes. Um, and then kind of stuff that you've either played or probably discussed with your, your normal crew and your normal mm-hmm. friends that you play with. Um, is that pretty much what the creative process is for you at this point? Well, um, that's how it started. You know, right. it would be uh, stuff that I wrote for my own game. My fifth edition yeah. adventures were almost all written for my home game and then converted. Okay. Um, you know, to, to be more generic and, uh, you know, take them. And that's actually Chow's request from Carbon 2185 was uh, a mission I wrote in about one evening for my friends to test Carbon 2185. And I took about 90% of that and I refluffed it and I rewrote parts and it became Chow's request. And that's pretty much how I used to write adventures. And that's how I still write adventures. It's once I have run for my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, that I have rewritten to be more generic. Because obviously when you make when you make an adventure, you think this character's gonna love this part, this character's gonna shine right. here. You write it for them. You can't do that with published stuff. You have to write it for a general audience. Yeah, you never want to uh, write in that like your friends uh, you know, level eight rogue. Yeah. You he, know they're gonna be in the party, so therefore you can put this exact yes, challenge that you exactly. know he can pass. Yeah. 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 So you don't do that, you do like generic stuff. Right. Um, yeah. Or you know. Oh, I know that. Oh, I know that Matthew's gonna check out uh, every time he sees a, a golden coin, he goes to it. So we're gonna lay golden coin traps. That's not gonna work for everyone. Right. Uh, you have to do stuff just for a general audience. Um, and that's how it used to work. But now, when I'm designing systems uh, or campaign settings, it's really just. Um, Thoughts, you know, are, are based on televisions or, or, you know, television shows or movies or video games and stuff like that. Like Carbon 2185 was heavily influenced by Blade Runner, Deus Ex, and uh, Ghost in the Shell. And I watched these movies and I, I, I played these games and I thought, man, I want to play games in this world. Right. Um, so then I was like, well, I better make it. I better make this world then. <laughs> Yeah. What did you think of the new uh, Blade Runner movie? Loved it. Absolutely. Not long enough. 
Uh, no, there's a four-hour cut that hasn't been released that I want to watch. I'll, I'll take that. Maybe yeah, that'll I, come out after uh, Dune comes out, because it's the same yes. director and everything. Yeah. Well, actually, Villeneuve. Uh, uh, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't. I don't it's understand French. But I do know that um, the first Carbon Twenty One Eighty Five uh, mission book is called Interlinked, mm-hmm. and the villains in that are called uh, Villeneuve. Okay. So it's named after a quote from the movie. Well, Interlinked was, is is from the uh, test, right? It's from yeah. It's from uh, it's from Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and uh, of course the director is uh, has the same name as the villains in the in the story. So there was a lot of Blade Runner influence there. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. There's a, there's a. I guess it's definitely. Um, Oh, I, I will say, Go ahead. the campaign setting I'm working on for Studio Circa is a 5th edition campaign setting. Mm. That's what it's going to be. And it's heavily influenced by the work of Hayao Miyazaki from Studio uh, Ghibli. Okay, it's kind of funny that you say that, because I could definitely uh, sense that in the logo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah um, so I just watched um, uh, The Wind Rises. Fantastic. That one did some mild uh, damage. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I've been seeing a lot of uh, Grave of the Firefly stuff, mm-hmm. so I think I'm going to dive into that, but I'm not sure if my like emotional state can handle it. The Wind Rises is one of my favorite ones. I- I'm actually big into aircraft myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to become a pilot. I wanted to learn uh, for fun and not commercial, but yeah. um, I went partially blind in one of my eyes, uh, so I can't do that. Yeah, they don't like but, that. No, <laughs> you have to be able to see. Um but I, what I can do is watch films about of pilots. <laughs> well, that's all. That's like strikingly similar to the main character of that. Yeah, uh, he has, right. He has like bad, he has he bad vision because he has bad vision. Yeah. It's very similar. But he can design planes. I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, but I can look at them. <laughs> well, um, you can design. You can design aircraft. Well, fantasy ones, I'm sure. Right. Let's get it. Let's get it in. Let's get the source book. <laughs> it's kind of um, uh, pre-industrial, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, medieval kind of standard fantasy stuff, but the studio uh, typically inspired. Uh, I wanted to be very light, very fun, um, perfect. You know, kids can play it and adults can enjoy it at the same time. The art style yeah. is we're going for the art style as well. Um, it's it's just I love it. You know, I've been playing in this campaign setting for years. Yeah, and I finally get to release it. Well, it is really. Um, it's definitely something that's kind of interesting. That I think when. You know, obviously, as kids, everybody loves the like the animated stuff, the Disney stuff, the Ghibli stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, like, when you are from like fifteen to twenty-two, you're like, "No, that's for kids, dude. I don't like that. I like <laughs> I like Quentin Tarantino movies." Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what I was like. <laughs> and then you're like twenty-six, and you're like, "Dude, this Ghibli movie's killing me right now." Right, I did the same thing. I was like eighteen to like twenty-one, not like yeah. fifteen. 15- it was like 18 to 21 i was like i'm only watching movies about the mob yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> and the soprano i'm watching the sopranos and exclusively uh, anything with robert daddy uh, robert uh, robert de niro in i'm watching okay. that because i'm i'm an artsy man now i appreciate high art cinema <laughs> and then uh as i got to like 22 23 i was like wait a minute this stuff's art just as much <laughs> You know, the work if of Miyazaki is, is just as artistic, yeah, if not more artistic. I mean, absolute, like, I mean, 
<laughs> Miyazaki stuff is like down to like every frame is exactly it's perfect. It's drawn. It's hand it's, drawn. It's hand drawn. It's so perfectly animated as well. If you look at 1980s uh, Miyazaki one versus 1980s Disney work, yeah, they're worlds apart. Yeah, they're worlds apart. And, and Mi- Disney was the uh, publisher in the U.S., right? Yeah, Disney had a much larger budget as well. Interesting. Yeah, and it's um, I mean, that's definitely like it does come down to there's some cultural differences there, obviously, and and Disney yes. is the culture in the U.S. There is like they don't have to fight against any other kind of system no. that has expectations of them. No, you can't. But uh, uh, yeah, even if you look at uh, Disney films from ten years uh, from the nineties, uh, like The Little Mermaid, that thing was like ninety six, and My Name Is Sora was like nineteen eighty eight. Yeah. Uh, Tassari's got much better animation. Yeah, it's got a better frame rate. I mean, yeah, on a, on a lower budget. Well, actually, it's I think it's uh, twelve frames per second. So it's worse. Yeah, it looks much smoother. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, did... also there is like something to say of that slower pace because I think there's something to say that like Disney is a big part of the reason why people can't watch a still like a like a slow scene anymore. Like it's just not mm-hmm. interesting anymore. Um. <laughs> There's kind of an acceleration of like, okay, we're going to change angles like every, like we get a new shot every three seconds. What and we're going to get a new, yeah. Is watching Miyazaki films with people for the first time. And during the slow scenes, they pick up their phones and check Facebook. <laughs> and I'm like, no, watch the film. <laughs> yeah, me and my wife have been battling about that lately. I She's getting like really into fanfic. Right. So she's like writing stuff. And it's like, <laughs> She's like, like constantly cutting down notes, and I'm like, please do not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I talk through films, okay? Yeah, I do that. Uh, that's how I enjoy it with the people I'm watching it with. I talk about it as it's happening. People get annoyed by that, yeah, understandably. But what annoys me is when they are silent but not paying attention. Yeah, I would rather someone be talking and saying, "Wow, that's great!" Oh, have you, did you see that? Than be sat there looking at their phone. Yeah, that, the only time I'll go to my phone is that I do go look up all the trivia for the movies while I'm oh, watching it, and I'll be like, did you know that in this scene, the, the <laughs> second cameraman dropped something on his foot, and that's why you can see a shadow over here, and the person glances over. <laughs> uh, when I like, was in uh, university, I dated, I dated someone who would look up the end of films as oh, they were. Yeah. Sometimes I'll do that before I see something if I'm not really sure if I'm going to be into it. <laughs> they would check the how it ends to That's see weird, if they yeah. want to watch it. And if it had a sad ending, they would stop watching. Oh, they, that's like uh, doesthedogdie.com. Uh, yeah. Do I have to watch a dog die on TV? Yes or no? <laughs> it's interesting. Isn't it, isn't it funny how we get more upset watching animals die in movies than... Uh, than oh, I'm happy to watch a million people die if they keep them Yeah, alive. right? Right? Yeah. Crazy. I think we've gone off on a tangent again. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at that. So just kind of rope it back in. Obviously, we've talked about uh, quarantine and kind of um, uh, the lockdown to... stuff. I mean, we have in general, but I, yeah, yeah, I guess let's talk about it on uh, the record here. Yeah, on, on the record, uh, quarantine is lasting a while. Uh, yep. I think it's great. I think it's the best solution we have right now to fight the pandemic. And I, I think that it's tough on people's mental health. And I think it's tough for people's mental and financial well-beings. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a tough one, but it's just what we've got to do. It's it's really the hardest uh, challenge we'll ever have as a generation, uh, I hope. Yeah, I thought that in 2000. Uh, uh, 
<laughs> yeah. I hope that this is the hardest thing we have to do. Um, yeah. But I think that even though we're all apart, we're all coming together. Um, our social medias, you know, our Facebook group and our, our Discord group have, have just absolutely flourished. People kind of mm-hmm. reaching out and talking about uh, life in general and video games and uh, movies and, uh, and of course, Carbon 2185. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, as we... Uh... Unfortunately, I think we're going to live through like the second corporate war or something here pretty soon. So uh, we'll <laughs> oh, see. How... Uh, we'll see. <laughs> the first corporate I... war obviously was the uh, East India Company, right? Yeah, that was a very long time ago. Yeah. It, well, you know, it takes a while to build back up. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely like I think it's made people. It hasn't made them more social, but it's made them understand what their own social needs are. Yes. That like. I have a lot of friends that now are like, you know, I, you know, on Facebook Messenger, you can see last message sent like 2017. And they're like, hey, were you still thinking about doing a Dungeons and Dragons game or something? And it's like, <laughs> dude, <laughs> I don't I, know who you are anymore. I ran into, I was out for a walk here in, here in England. You can go for uh, one walk a day because exercise. Yeah. I was out for a walk and I ran into a friend of mine who was also out for his, his uh, government-appointed walk of the day. Perfect. And um, it just felt absolutely phenomenal. And we were opposite sides of the street, of course, mm. talking to someone I knew in person. Yeah. Uh, and I realized how much I miss it. And I actually uh, wish I had never seen him because <laughs> now, I, now I miss those social interaction far more than I did before. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's why you turned your webcam on instinctively when we first got on the Skype call. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you just had to see another human, and I, unfortunately for you, I have all my shit locked down. Not happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've forgotten what people to look like. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of worried that I'm going to come out like I won't know how to look people in the eyes anymore, and like I'll just kind of stare over their shoulder or something and just really put people off. I find shoes a lot less comfortable now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that, uh, like, I have just been insanely, I'm, like, five times more productive. Yeah, I because, I've been more productive. Yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm on my company laptop, we VPN in or whatever, and I just, I don't talk to the guy that sits in the cube next to me. I don't go, you know, I don't hear somebody walking by and remember that I wanted to ask them about something a week ago, yeah. and I never got around to it. Like, I'm just, you know, it's just me. Listening to a podcast. I, I am. Would want am me to listen to it work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I also enjoy having uh, the office. I enjoy having an office to work from. I know? do actually really like. Um, I like as much as it's like, it's worse for the business, but I like to actually just have some of that personal interaction and stuff because that, mm. that's something that I'm like uniquely good at in my group. Like, we're all engineers and. Right. Um, cybersecurity people and computer guys. So, like, everybody has, like, their own weird, like, stunted personality issue. Well, and, I mean, I work for a games design companies. So. Right, exactly. And before <laughs> that, web. So yeah, I can only like imagine some of the people in web design. <laughs> it's pretty much the same people. Just absolute heathens. Everyone's talking but, uh, over each other. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's um, you know, it, it's definitely, like, it's it's kind of interesting that a lot of the people, this is a big thing in the U.S., and I'm sure it's true probably everywhere. The people who were the most like, oh, I hate society. I hate regular people. I just 
take care of myself and my own. Now those are the ones that are like banging on the government building doors to reopen hair salons and shit. We haven't actually had any of that here. You know, you guys have actually been through shit in the past. I think that's the main difference. Yeah, I don't know what's happening in the U.S. I've seen these protests online. I haven't seen them in any other country. Well, we have like a real like distrust and kind of hatred of government, even when the government's working really well and doing things properly. What amazes me about that is that that Donald Trump um, seems to be stirring up his own fan base to be anti-government, but he... Is the guy in charge? They don't know that. <laughs> I mean, he's the guy in charge, but what if there's actually a puppet master behind the scenes that is... Oh, my God. That's what everybody there's, thinks. There's uh, a house it's... on High Street. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with the QAnon uh, yep. conspiracy theory? I wasn't, so I encourage any uh, listeners to, to pause this now. And it's go a fun and one. It. Um, it's, uh, I don't believe it at, at all. But there is a house on my street that has in their window Q add-on stuff printed out and stuck to the windows of the house so that everyone would be asking to read it. Um, and I thought, well, that's one house to never knock on the door and ask for sugar, you know? Right. <laughs> that's one neighbor I'm going to avoid. Um, it's quite a popular conspiracy theory. I don't believe it. But I think people who are so um, open about it Mm. Um, perhaps a bit uh, odd well they're like uh, those are people that are just truly living their life yes you know they just do not give a shit what anybody else thinks and there's something liberating to that and it is like I think this we are really getting into a very you know cyberpunk world and I think that's one reason why it's become really popular again Um, it's funny that like in the 70s and 80s they were like, dude, there's like cell phones. Like you can like have a phone that's not even plugged into your house and you can like make a call in your well, car. It's pretty cyberpunk. Um, here in the UK, the government are working on an app that tracks your oh, I think I heard about this. And uh, the movement of all your friends and family and everyone you yeah. come into contact with to create a network to know who's been in contact with who. Um, yeah. And that's going to be mandatory. I need to talk about it, but it becomes mandatory. It's going to track who you are, where you live, who you come in contact with, who they come in contact with to help slow the spread of the coronavirus. It's a great idea. But it does sound incredibly cyberpunk, and uh, we will see if they stop using it after the pandemic or if they keep it around. Well, and again, I think something that cyberpunk does a really good job of pointing out is that it's not necessarily this thing in itself is bad. No. It's what can be done with this thing yeah right yeah so I mean, like this is self-driving great cars yeah yeah it's yeah. um th- there was the like study where the people were able to like remotely like these cars that have a remote shut off functions and things like that they were able to get in and tell it to shut off in the middle of the highway right yeah. or you know people's ring doorbells i mean this is you know they've not been used negatively so much but um like amazon just there's no question whatsoever. Um, there's no need to like show a warrant or anything. The police can just log into any Ring doorbell camera feed in the well, US. Also, uh, Ring make indoor security cameras. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have heard about people logging into those and talking to people's kids. Mm-hmm. I have uh, one in my uh, home and uh, in the office. Uh, I have Ring security cameras, but the the security floor on that is. Uh, 
people weren't changing the password from the yeah, default. It's not so much a yeah, the security <laughs> flaw is that's user a user issue. flaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there is a way to make stuff not work unless you put in a unique password. I mean, yeah, I mean it, it, that's certainly something they they should have fixed. Yeah, I'm um, definitely afraid of having um, Wi-Fi enabled devices. Like, I mean, I work in cybersecurity in nuclear, so we're like the most paranoid living creatures. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, I don't, like, I already know the level of monitoring that goes on. And, like, you know, there's an Amazon Alexa that was used in a murder case to, like, they use the Amazon Alexa to rat out its owner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it had recorded him saying, I'm going to, like, stab you or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, I... Yeah. I've got um, an Alexa, yeah. an Amazon Echo, um, and I've got uh, Ring uh, security cameras, and I have GPS tracking on my phone, as everyone does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. My oh, phone... yeah, I mean, like, as much as I don't have an Alexa, I do have a Samsung phone. Yes, I have, a, I have a Huawei. I have a Huawei phone. I have a Huawei tablet. Yeah, and I, I have a Huawei laptop. Yeah, well, I'm fine with the Chinese government listening to me. What are they going to hear? Nothing. Yeah, I, don't I mean, Amazon. Thing, I don't mind the Chinese government spying on me. Right. They're very welcome to. I worry about my own government doing it. Right, they because they can actually impact your life. Yeah, because that's where I am. <laughs> right. Suddenly, you know, Bobby comes up with the billy club and starts taking out your kneecaps. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally different. So, I, yeah, it is. Um, based on the police officers here, most people could outrun them, so. Oh yeah, that's that's. I think that's probably universally true. <laughs> yeah, but in America, they could shoot you when you're running away. <laughs> oh yeah, dude. Yeah, and we, not only have... can they, but I think they're in, they're instructed to. <laughs> yeah, they don't have guns here, most of them. Yeah, it's only for extreme circumstances, right? Like yes. after you've already used three narwhal horns on somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not to make a joke about that, but obviously it was uh, kind of a strange situation. That's real, uh, real everyday heroes. Um Yeah, I'm totally fine with people having guns. Yeah. I By mean, the way, I just don't want cops to have guns. <laughs> uh, barely anyone has guns here. Um, yeah. my, my, oh, actually, I don't want to say. Uh, so, someone I know has a gun, uh, you know, in their home. I don't think it's legal. The uh, government app is looking into that right now. Yeah. Uh, someone I know uh, <laughs> uh, has, has a pistol for self-protection. Is it in like an house? ancient, like, flintlock pistol, too, or...? I think it's a 1911. Okay. Very common gun. All right, yeah. Uh, but it's just for, for home protection, which, you know, fair enough. Yeah, it's, it is definitely, um, I mean, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of um, kind of acceleration of the world into the cyberpunk world. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of things are just like, oh, well, we could just make an app for that. And it's like, uh, taxis already exist. You don't need to make an app for that. Like it exists. Elon yeah. Musk is like, yo, what if these tunnels that I'm talking about just had like a high speed train in them? It's like you've invented the subway. What I think's really fun about the uh, Elon Musk's tunnel is that it goes from his home to his workplace. Oh, correct. And somehow he managed to get a government grub to build himself a personal route to work that avoids uh, traffic. That only his car works on. Yeah, the only thing <laughs> somehow he convinced the government to pay for that, and I think that's one of the most genius things he's ever done. It's a powerful move. It's a yeah. that's a uh, that's a big dick move for sure. That's that's a flex. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of, you know, something I think that was really formative to the current uh, kind of push of not not so much cyberpunk, but I, I guess kind of in a similar vein, um, I recently finished the Final Fantasy VII remake. Uh, uh, I'm going to shock the audience and say I've never played Final Fantasy. Any Final Fantasy game? I played Chocobo's Dungeon. Okay, that counts. That's fine. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, if there was no Final Fantasy game whatsoever, you're not allowed to enter the U.S. <laughs> they bring that uh, up at customs. Isn't it a Japanese franchise? Yeah, no. <laughs> I've been it is, but it's an American <laughs> cultural product. I went to... Um... Uh, 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 the the Tokyo Game Show in 2010. Uh-huh. Uh, so a very long time ago. And um, there was Final Fantasy merch everywhere. Oh, it's huge over there. Yeah, everywhere. Uh, and I was like, I recognize this. <laughs> but I didn't, as I, when I was a kid, I didn't have games consoles. Uh, okay. We weren't allowed them. Um, Interesting. We didn't really have enough money for them. You know, the Nintendo 64 and that sort of stuff. Uh, my grandparents had a PS1, and we got a PS2 uh, when that came out. Not when it came out, but a couple years later. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, man, video games are great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was a good time to pick up Final Fantasy X. What's your excuse? Uh, was I was kind PS2. of into Grand Theft Auto at the time. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And then I wasn't, it wasn't until I was like a teenager that I started playing RPGs. Well, that was a big thing that we've been kind of talking about recently as we kind of talk about Final Fantasy VII and kind of bring, re-bringing up that era. Like, the in between the PS2 and the PS3 and the 360 was the big shift from, you know, Japanese developers to Western developers. Yeah. And, like, the Western market really just took the baton and ran with it. And, yeah. like... You know, we had, like, the first Mass Effect that just totally changed uh, RPGs. I, um, uh, I studied video game design when I was in college, which, uh, to American listeners, that's not the same as American college. That's the, the kind of two years when you're 16 to 18. Um, it's, like, super high school, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so you finish, you finish uh, um, senior school, high school at 16, and then you do um, another qualification between 16 and 18 which used to be optional and isn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you used to be able to start work at 16. You can't now. Um, and you either do A-levels, uh, which is just kind of a continuation of school, or you can do a, uh, a diploma, a national diploma uh, in a subject. And I, st- I chose video games design. And of course, of course what 16-year-old wouldn't? Right, yeah. They say, oh, you can continue on doing math and science and English, or you can go and spend two years studying how to make video games. And little like, did you know that would pay off in the future. Almost nothing. I don't want to slag. I don't yeah. want to slag off my uh, former, <laughs> former college. Almost nothing I learned on that course is applicable to any point of my life since leaving. Well, that, I think that's true of a lot of school stuff. It's more about fundamentals or whatever. But yeah, it was kind of a. I, don't, I think it's pretty good now. It's different staff and everything. Uh, but all of my closest friends I met on that course because we were all uh, of the same demographic and we all enjoyed the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, nerds. Yeah, we were all nerds, right? <laughs> From the same place, the same right. age. Uh, we were pretty much all guys. Um, you know, uh, because I think there was one woman on the course. Uh, yeah, it's a cultural thing. 
Yeah, uh, it's different now. It's different now. Mm-hmm. But this I'm talking ten years ago, right. uh, twelve years ago. Sorry, you know, and um, almost nothing I learned was useful. Yeah. <laughs> and no one from my year that I knew on the course went into games design, video games design. Mm-hmm. No, not a single person. Because we didn't learn anything about it. We were the only college in the country teaching it. And we have a huge video games industry in England. Yeah. And none of us got jobs in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, That's funny. One of the people who was in my class now teaches the class. Okay. Uh, at the same college. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's definitely something, too, that, like, um, I'm not sure how the games culture in the UK is, but certainly, like, it's one of the, like, more, like, uh, like difficult jobs in terms of, like, hours and stuff like that. The pay is like, not great. The pay is not great. I mean, you get universally paid less than you would to work in any other form of software mm-hmm. um, or like tech. And well, then uh, also you have, work more um, hours. Rockstar North is in the UK. So, yeah. I mean, we have, a, we have a lot of jobs here in the games industry. Yeah, I know they, Peter Molyneux used, really used to run a slave ship over in... Um, he still um, does. Gilford, he still yeah. does. Uh, whatever he um, touches is... Uh, no, I say we need to we need to bring him back for Fable Four. Yeah, um, I actually really like his whole story is really good. He like stole computers from some other company or something. I'm not a fan of Modern You because I backed Goddess on Kickstarter. Oh, I did too, and I I love him for it. Uh, <laughs> and he never finished it. This thing sucks. He never <laughs> finished it. <laughs> He's an idea guy. He's not an execution guy. You know. No, um, he needs a publisher behind him. Like like yeah. we were saying earlier, he's a development studio. Yeah. And he yeah. needs a publisher. And the problem is now he can be his own publisher. Well, he's, yeah, he's definitely somebody that needs a, like, numbers guy to just constantly say no to certain things. Yeah, well, they need, he needs someone above him saying, yeah. this is your budget. This is your time frame. Get it finished. Yeah. Because otherwise, well, like, he, he just runs out of money on everything. Because he's overly ambitious. He's a great designer, but he's overly ambitious. Yeah, I think that he went and made uh, 22 cans, was what it was called. And then he is now, he's no longer there. He went on to something else, I think. I felt so sorry for the staff at 22 cans when he left, because they had to pick up the pieces Mm -hmm. uh, of his his mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. I I I don't know if it even still exists. Oh, it does. Goddess Wars is still playable on uh, Steam. That's because they tried to they tried to salvage it by transferring over to like a sort of like a competitive thing. The problem with Goddess and Goddess Wars uh-huh. is, uh, and I don't know if you know this, um, Goddess Wars was developed alongside Goddess. It, the Twenty Two Cans was split into two groups. Okay. Um. And one of them was working at Goddess, and one was working at Goddess Wars, and they were meant to be merged, right? Uh-huh. As one big game, but they couldn't get the code to work Damn. because there wasn't enough interaction between the two groups of developers. Right. So they, so they just <laughs> built two totally different frameworks. Yes, yeah, so they look the same, and they were meant to be two parts of the same game, yeah. but they couldn't get it to work because they didn't interact enough. Uh, 
and that was Molyneux's fault. <laughs> you gotta have communication in your company, people. Yeah, that was like that was his idea. <laughs> uh, he was in charge, and he messed up. He messed up. Um, yep. You know, and uh, that I felt so sorry for them because I can only imagine working on something for I think it was like eighteen months, two years, and then realizing the code doesn't work. Oh, that's quick. I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of that's a that's a big thing in really the whole game industry. That's like, you know, you'll work on something for five years and then the game gets shit canned and you your name never shows up in any credits. Yeah, you have signed NDA, so you can't put it on your resume. You just have to. Move oh, that on. that happens in tabletop gaming as well. Yeah, yeah. It happens a lot more in tabletop gaming because a lot of the publishers are small, um, yeah. so they run out of money more often. Right. Um, I've worked on several projects. Um, freelance stuff that just never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I stopped doing freelance work. You'll notice if you Google me, um, which I Google myself more than anyone else has ever Googled me. Um, right. <laughs> I've never done anything outside of Dragon Silver Games. I have worked on projects, but yeah. they never got finished. Yeah. Through no fault of my own, they never got finished. So I was like, oh, that's it. I'm not working for anyone else anymore. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, like, I, I think we kind of really early on in the call kind of started talking about that. Like, there are definitely people, like, uh, I think it's kind of easier to do if you're in, like, art or some kind of very specific aspect that yeah. you're able to kind of make something and fire it off. And it's like, okay, if something happens with this, that's awesome. If nothing happens with it, I got paid already. Being so a freelancer fine. in the industry is so incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, I, Barely did it at all, but I know so many freelancers. Yeah, uh, you've pretty much got to be able to write three thousand words per day, which is six uh, pages of eight point five by eleven inches. So you've got to mm. be able to write, you know, six pages a day, every single day, uh, and then you'll be making like about a hundred dollars a day. Okay, which isn't a huge wage. Yeah. You know, because that's that's how much it costs. It costs about a hundred dollars to have uh, six pages written. Yeah. Uh, for a writer, you know, because publishing... and that's um, that's completed pages. Yes. So that's not like you know, you know, you say like it's six pages a day, but it's really all of your after you're done the first day, you're thinking of everything that evening. You're yeah. thinking about it when you go to sleep. You wake up thinking about it. You that's go six and pages put down... of publishable material. Right. Every right. single day. For what works out to be about a hundred dollars a day, about two thousand dollars a month, and that's a lot. Yeah, and of course that's assuming you can find enough work. You know, it's, it's, not, it's definitely difficult. It's very, very difficult. It's so much. Uh, if you've got the skills to run a business and do advertising, it's much easier to just be a publisher. Yeah. That's why when I started, I was doing development and publishing, and I'm still doing development and publishing because I don't write fast enough to be a freelancer. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't make enough money to even pay my phone bill yeah. if I was a freelancer because I'm not fast enough at writing. Yeah, this is definitely interesting, and it, it's it's a kind of a weird skill to develop, right? Of like. Just being able to churn out workable material. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be good as well. Right, exactly. It's got to be good enough that someone buys it and then rates it four or five stars. Otherwise, you won't get any more work. 
Right. So you've got to be able also, to write like a five star. You have to be star, able to go ahead. Yeah, you got to be able to write like a five star adventure every single day. Yeah, and you you have to be able to do that, and you have to be able to turn on your heel at any moment. And okay, now this is sci-fi. Okay, this is fantasy. Okay, exactly. this is yeah. uh, you know Arabian themed. Well. Uh, this is D and D. This is Starfinder. This is Pathfinder. This is yeah, exactly uh, vampire. Ed Greenwood, who created the Forgotten Realms, mm-hmm. can write fifteen pages a day. Jesus God! And, and he probably has it all memorized. Yeah, yeah, he's got such the guy's a genius. He remembers every word he's ever written. Yeah, I've heard him on several. Uh, like I used to listen to the Wizards like D and D podcast, mm-hmm. and they would talk to him, and they're like, "Well." Um, you know, and this newest edition of Forgotten Realms, how does whatever? And he's like, okay, so, um, you know, the this particular named character, and he'll, like, say their name, and he's like, so they were born in 1402. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, like, he has it all just ready to go. The guy is a genius. Yeah, absolute legend. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant writer. Uh, he remembers everything he's ever written, it seems. I don't remember. When people, when I play Carbon 2185, I have to check the, the rule book. Yeah. And I wrote it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I read about ninety percent of the rule book. I have to, I have to read it uh, when I play it. He remembers everything. He remembers stuff he wrote in the eighties. Yeah, and he, not yeah. not only that, but like he also has this, you know, series of novels. Yes, um, all the like <laughs> Elminster stuff, and like it's just like he, he has it all ready to go at all times. Yeah, I remember uh, I mentioned Darren Pierce earlier, a UK designer. Yeah, uh, he wrote for me. I think in one day he did for me like 16 pages. Wow. Because I needed it done. And he was like, yeah, I'll get it done. And he did. He wrote it all. And I was like, I can't even read that fast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I, I asked him at lunchtime. You know, he was on his lunch. So it was about one o'clock in the evening. 7 p.m. he gave it to me. Wow. And I was like, Darren, I can't read this fast enough. (laughs) He was sending it to me throughout the day, Facebook Messenger. Uh, he was sending it to me, and I was trying to read it. And then he would write the next bit, and it would push the message up. And I couldn't read it as fast as he was writing it. That's amazing. Uh, he just got into the flow state. Yeah, he's really, really talented. Really, really talented writer. Uh, he's one of these guys you can rely on. He would say, Darren, I need six pages by this evening. He will go, yeah, no problem. And he'll have it by lunch. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, yeah, just kind of talking about more uh, recent stuff. Like, what have you been playing recently, personally? Uh, tabletop games or video games? Yes. Okay. Uh, tabletop games, the game I play the most is obviously Carbon 2185, which, yeah. by the way, I've never played. I've only ever run it. Okay. Everyone yeah, you've never is, been a player. Well, everyone is afraid to run it for me. <laughs> I think that would be the best opportunity is for somebody to run it for you because then you can really get some poking holes in it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I want to play it, uh, but, but everyone's like, ooh. Right, yeah. We'll get you on the list because we've been trying to get a game going. It's been tough trying to get good, consistent people, but this yeah, is before yeah. the quarantine. Oh, give me a shout. Uh, you know, if it works my time zone, I'll do it. Yeah. Because um, I want to play it. I, I mean, it's a cool system, it's my favorite system. <laughs> yeah. Well, not uh, only that, but I think as the. As the creator, you always want other people to do dumb shit with it. Yes. Because you can only think of what you have already thought of. Yeah. Right? I. Um, the more I, I, I run games, the more ideas I have what to add. 
and what right. to take away and what to adjust, you know, right. and what people want. Um, so having just a complete idiot take a run at it, I think, would give you a lot. Oh, yeah. Big time. It shows uh, me, um, when I was doing the playtest for it, I would troll uh, through the internet and look at uh, people talking about it. And the parts of the rules that confuse them, I would go and take another look at. And I would reword or clarify. And I wouldn't yep. ask people their feedback. And I did ask for feedback. And, and I got quite a lot of good feedback. But the most important feedback for me was just what people were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, I don't understand this rule. I don't understand this. And I would go back and I would change it. So it was cl- uh, clarified. Yeah. Um, but I don't think people realized that I was reading everything they were writing. And I was at the time. I was spending hours and hours every day just reading every forum post, every Facebook post about Carbon 2185. Uh, yeah, I think um, I, I definitely once you, like at that point you have had, you had already, you know, published several adventures and you'd already gotten a bunch of feedback and everything. Yeah. And it's like, it, it actually is so beneficial to hear, like uh, you do get to a certain, like obviously, you know, people always talk about, oh, well, you know, I read a hundred good comments and the one negative one sticks out and bothers me. That That, that happens. That's definitely uh, true. But it, like the negative stuff is really good because yeah. sometimes they are well, pointing at something real. A lot real. of it. A lot of it. Yeah. You know, we get some negative reviews or comments from people who have misunderstood the rules mm. or misunderstood uh, the wording, and then they say that it's a bad game because you yeah. know they haven't read it properly. Those those upset me uh, right. the most. Well, it's um, also because like like I could fix this in like a ten minute conversation, and this yeah. guy's just gonna like bomb my shit instead. Yeah, give it a one star review. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because he didn't read the the whole paragraph. Right. Uh, do you know uh, Red Dwarf, uh, British uh, science fiction television show? Mm-hmm. So Craig Charles was stars in that. He did an interview a year ago, uh, and he was asked, you know, when it first came out, what did people think? And he, and bear in mind, Red Dwarf came out in the eighties. Okay, right. He recited word for word a negative review of Red Dwarf from nineteen eighty nine. He recited the whole thing word for word. And that's what it's like, you know? Yeah. You only remember the bad reviews. You're haunted by uh, a one-star review of somebody that has no profile picture and their name is User. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> we have like 55 reviews on Drive for RPG. Yeah. One of them's like three stars or two stars or something like that. And the rest are all five stars. It's the, I only remember what the what, what the two star one says. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, because I think that's just how uh, creators work. Well, you know? I, just in general, I think anybody. Like, you know, yeah, if, um, if you, you can have a thousand people at work tell you you're doing a good job and one person says you're an idiot and it completely destroys your psyche. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you know uh, Rick and Morty? Yeah. Justin Roiland, who co-created Rick and Morty, used to go on 4chan when it first aired and spend an hour or two after each episode first aired insulting it yeah right because he he wanted to control the negative feedback he wanted to be the person giving the negative feedback so he would go on there and and insult his own work yeah so that way that nobody could ever say something that he didn't already say himself right exactly he said he wanted to be his worst critic yeah 
So then everything everyone else said was like, well, that's, you know, they don't hate it as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is an interesting technique, not one I'm going to use. That's probably not healthy, yeah. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, have you been playing any video games too? Animal Crossing? I've been playing uh, Call of Duty Warzone. Okay. Because it is free. Yep. Uh, and it is cross-play. And that oh, yeah. That me and all of my friends, who, I, who I've known for 12 years, like I mentioned earlier, right. play online together, and we've never been able to do that. Right? Yeah, I think uh, Destiny was trying to get that, but I think uh, Warzone was really able to eat its lunch. Yeah, so like I've got a PC. I'm predominantly a PC gamer. I also have an Xbox uh, One, which was gifted to me, but I didn't really play it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I'm a PC gamer. You know, uh, a friend of mine called Liam is a PC gamer. We play a lot. We play a lot of uh, games online together. You know, Civilization and uh, Total War and all that sort of stuff. Then, you know, one of my close friends, Simon, has a PS4. Uh, A friend of mine, Adam, uh, has an Xbox One. So we've never really been able to play online games together at the Mm. same time. Like, I've been able to play with Adam. Uh, Liam's been able to play with Simon Simon and, and Liam and I have been able to play together we're real good friends but for once we're able to play a game together and it is really amazing and of course it's free which really is great in uh, yep. what is very difficult economic time Right. Um, excellent timing on that game I mean I don't think it's the best game I don't yep. think it's even the best Battle Royale game but what it is is the most social one because you can play it with any of your friends, provided they have any console or PC. Right. So I've been playing a lot of that. I've been playing, I love the Total War games. Yep, Three Kingdoms. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't been playing Three Kingdoms. Again, it's too expensive for me. I'm very you got you to think like an American. Spend you know, 87% of your paycheck on entertainment. <laughs> I'm very cheap. Uh, you know, uh, my lifestyle is very, very uh, cheap. I only buy games on sales or get them if they're free. <laughs> um, most of my money goes on tabletop games. So yeah, I'll, get, playing... I'll get you a copy. Next time there's a sale, let me know. I'll get you a copy of Three Kingdoms. You got to play it. <laughs> I've been playing uh, Attila. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's you know, pretty I, recent. 2015 or something. Yeah, I think it was. I got it for like seven pounds, which is about ten dollars. Yeah. Totally worth that. Totally worth more than that. Um, really great game. I've been playing Attila. I've been playing. Um, you know, uh, uh, Warzone, uh, Deus Ex is a game series I've played so many times over. I like the old ones, um, the original ones. Um, I prefer those to the new ones, but maybe that's just showing my age a bit. Yeah, the first <laughs> of the newer ones was cool. Um, the newest, uh, Mankind Divided. Um, I heard that was just the absolute shit show, so I never even touched it. It's a good game. Uh, the graphics are really nice. Yeah. And the story's good. It's Eidos Montreal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm definitely, I mean, oh, like, oh, um, go ahead. Red Dead. Red Dead. One or two? Two. Okay. I so replayed that's... one in the lead up to two. Okay. But I, I did actually buy Red Dead 2 on launch. Um, see, if you would have just waited, it'll be on Game Pass by the end of the month. Yeah, I know, right? I know. Um, GTA 5 I bought on launch as well. Pretty much okay. Rockstar games I buy on launch. Yeah. Um, I've been playing uh, Xenoblade Chronicles. Okay. Uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild. 
uh, which is an older game, but it's a pretty good one. Yeah. I don't know when that was. 2017, 16, something like that. Yeah, I don't know when it was, but it's a really good game. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, uh, yeah. mostly I've been rewatching the Studio Ghibli uh, films because they're all on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, I mean, like that, like Netflix has really been killing it lately. They're about to add all of uh, the Last Airbender, and uh, I guess is it just Last Airbender, or they might be adding Legend of Korra as well. But, I've never um, seen Last Airbender, but all I've seen is hype about it. So it I mean, the original three season show mm-hmm. is like perfect. TV. It's the it's the highest art level that. Uh, United States animation will ever hit other than yeah. Shrek the Third. <laughs> Shrek the Third. <laughs> For some reason, that one's better than the others, so nobody knows why. I really <laughs> liked the first Shrek movie. I have them all. I, I have the, two, I bought I the have quintology. A, I have a two-year-old daughter, so I've been watching a lot of uh, Trolls. Good boy. I've been watching a lot of Trolls. Not a fan. Uh, Trolls 2 is going to bankrupt me because every weekend when I have her, I have to oh, rent man. Trolls 2 again. Uh... <laughs> Oh, they won't let you buy it yet. Yeah, no, you can't buy it yet. Yeah. I don't know if you can over there. You have to rent it. And it's, oh it's uh, 16 pounds each time, which is about oh 20 my God. So, yeah, every weekend I have to rent Trolls 2 again. Just buy out a movie theater. <laughs> um, that's my biggest expense right now. I would say. Is Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake. You've got like a premium subscription to Trolls over here. Yeah, they, they must love me. I think there's probably a lot of households that are renting it every day. Oh, man. Well, you get like a 24-hour watch period or something, right? Or I guess it depends on where you get it. You get it for 24 hours. Yeah. You can start watching it within 30 days, and then you have 24 hours to finish it. So I always try and buy it in the afternoon, the Saturday afternoon, so then I can watch it Saturday with her, and then Sunday morning. Right. Because she wants to watch it more than once, you know? Uh, I saw it six times <laughs> uh, the weekend it came out. God, <laughs> it's it's a good film. Okay, are you sure, or do you have Stockholm syndrome? I think I have Stockholm syndrome. I think <laughs> quarantine's doing things to me as well because I was temporarily uh, until a friend told me it was a terrible idea. I was working on a new uh, tabletop RPG cool. using vampires and cyberpunk, and then I got. I did about a week's work on it, and then I showed it to one of my friends, and he was like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I took a, I took a look at it again, and I was like, "No, I was like, this is gonna, I'm gonna put this down and never touch it again." All it was was the full script to Trolls World Tour typed out word for word. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually gonna be able to memorize that soon. Um, did you ever read that Facebook post about the kid that uh, memorized the first Shrek film and he could watch it in his head? <laughs> you'll be able no, to do that soon but i envy him <laughs> you'll be able to do that very soon yeah i mean um yeah so so trolls 2 is gonna bankrupt me right so please guys please buy carbon 2185 because to. that pays my daughter's trolls addiction addiction yeah. uh each time you buy a troll uh, a, a carbon 2185 pdf it pays for me to watch trolls 2 once <laughs> <laughs> So please, please buy them. <laughs> we need to flood the uh, the flood the Ethernet cables with this download. Yeah, I don't have any trolls merch yet. 
But yeah. I feel like that's coming. I feel like she's going to... She can use words quite well now. She's two. Um, I feel like she's going to start asking for Trolls toys. Well, uh, luckily, they'll, the production will be delayed, I probably. Yeah, I mean, I'm not financially prepared for Trolls toys and to rent Trolls. Right. <laughs> um, you know... It's it's a tough one. It's a yeah. tough one. Yeah, I definitely I have like that. Uh, it, it started after I started college, so I don't know what really the impetus of this was, but I got really into collecting like DVDs and Blu-rays. Yeah, I have loads of DVDs, and I um, don't have a DVD player. That's fine. Because <laughs> I used to have a DVD player. Do you have a disc drive on your computer? I do not. Okay, so there you're totally worthless. <laughs> and the disc drive on my Xbox One is broken. Oh, that's weird. Original yeah. Xbox One? Uh, it did work. And like I said, I have a software. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, yes, I see. It yeah. became a uh, bologna holder or something? Salami yeah, holder. no, yeah. I think that um, I wasn't paying attention and uh, a game was trying to be sucked into it. Mm. She could work. She worked out the button to check the game. Yeah. And she was trying to pull it out at the same time. And it just broke the whole mechanism. Yeah, it doesn't like that. The, the, the console still works, though. I just yeah. can't play any of my disc games. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just checked. I have to keep a, uh, a, a like note pad thing, like a document that has all of my movies because I've started like buying multiple copies because I forgot I already owned it. <laughs> I used to um, do that with um, Kung Fu movies. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Well, they all have similar titles too, so I can see they how do. it's hard to... I really like Kung Fu movies. Yeah. I have uh, uh, 745 titles. Wow. Um, and that's doing, that's like counting things like all the Harry Potter movies count as one. Yeah. Um, wow, that's a lot then. Yeah, I got a lot. How many video games do you own, do you know? Very few. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, on Steam, I have a ton, but uh, I, 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 I don't really worry about disc copies of games. I just hit 100 on Steam. Uh, let me open up my Steam. This is... Um, but okay, I don't so mind remember... those bundles. I know a lot of people buy those those cheap bundles. Yeah, the humble, I buy those. humble bundles and stuff. I don't get those. Um, I bought the humble bundle of Pathfinder books. Okay, so I've got my list of all Steam mm -hmm. games in my Steam library. Uh, Four hundred and seventy-seven. <laughs> I thought I, I was bragging at a hundred. I have. Uh, I only have forty of them downloaded. Okay. And I think I've only played about one hundred and eighty of them. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, there's actually a website you can go on um, where you input your Steam username and it tells you which uh, what percentage of your games you've played. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've done that with like I got really into League of Legends when it first came out. Yeah, and I still play it off and on. Um, I I forget what my exact number was, but there's a website that how much time have I wasted on League of Legends, and then it breaks it down to like. That's the equivalent of four thousand movies watched. Uh, you know, three thousand one hundred <laughs> books now. read. Um, on yeah. Steam, you can sort your games by most played now. Mm -hmm. um, look at that. Which is really interesting if you if you play a lot of uh, PC games, which I do. I don't play as much now uh -huh. uh, as I used to. Um, I mainly work in my free time. Um, sort because obviously by... I, I run the company, so like any free, and I really love it. I love the I love the job. So any free time I get. I do work. I work because it's my hobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, which is a, I'm in a really lucky position. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, it's I think it's something that a lot of people are trying to do. To, it, like you said, kind of, 
you know, work your passion, work your hobby. Um, I, there's definitely like a poisonous side to it potentially. It's really like, easy to get burnt out. Yeah, and then like, you also just killed your own hobby for yourself. Yeah, I did that the first year I wrote uh, Dungeons and Dragons stuff. I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and I was just writing it. Yeah, um, I was totally burnt out. But then I, you know, connected with some really great designers and uh, on Facebook. You can, uh, a lot of designers are on Facebook. You can add them as friends, you know, and they're they're happy to add you and oh, talk yeah. about hobby because they're not just designers in the ivory towers, you know, as uh, video game designers seem to be, you know, tabletop role-playing guys are fans, first and foremost. Well, and like you said, the successful ones are also going and making personal connections at, you know, conventions Mm -hmm. and, um, like, I I was able to make it to probably the last, uh, you know, big game convention for a while. I went to PAX East in Boston, and, um, the, I mean, half of the floor was tabletop stuff, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I mean, you did have some pull out, like Square Enix pulled out, Sony pulled out. Um, you know, there were some big games, you know, video game companies missing. But regardless, the, you know, the tabletop stuff, I mean, they're, they go right into the thick of it and, and um, you know, are meeting a bunch of different people, trying yeah. to form like a quick personal connection. Well, um, I, um... We did Dragon Meet, uh, which is a smallish convention here in the UK. It's actually mm-hmm. our second biggest, but it's it's only about three thousand people. Yeah. Um, we did that last year uh, in December, and we were so busy the whole time that we barely got any time to talk to anyone. But luckily, we set up the day before, mm-hmm. and so did everyone else. So all the designers and publishers oh, were just kind of hanging out. Guys, we're hanging out, uh, like, as we were setting up each other, our stalls, you know, when one person would finish, they would wander around yeah. and talk to everyone else, um, you know, and, uh, and make friends, you know. And then it was at a hotel, and everyone was staying at the hotel, and there was a bar there, so then everyone was drinking in the bar the yep. night before, all the designers, and it was, it was kind of cool because it's a lonely industry. You don't really meet anyone else in it except at these cons. Uh, and it was like a big mixer, everyone eating their food and drinking their whiskey and beer and talking about dice. <laughs> mm-hmm. The whole bar was full of people, was full of tabletop guys. Yeah. Which was really cool. All right. Uh, yeah, all, all, of, all of the uh, uh, Russell Morrissey from N Publishing mm-hmm. uh, and N World, as you, you probably know. Yeah. Uh, he was there and we, we got on really great. Um, I think we're like, there's only like five big publishers in the UK. You know, mm-hmm. you have uh, Modifius, um, Cubicle right. 7, mm-hmm. uh, and Publishing. I like to think Dragon's Elder Games as well. Right. Um, and I'm sure there's one who's going to listen to this and be annoyed that I've forgotten them. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it, it's quite late in the evening when this is being recorded, just to clarify. Right. Uh, but yeah, and. Um, it's really, really, uh, they're all good guys. Everyone I spoke to, um, and everyone I met and got to hang out with was just a really nice person, which is, uh, unusual. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's definitely like, a the, the tabletop games kind of culture has really developed, um, sort of quickly into like a kind of, it's, it's 
it's a lot bigger than it has been in the past, but at the same time, it's still really like, um, I don't know. It's still on a, a smaller scale where people are able to, you know, a, a lot of people know each other yeah. or travels fast trends, travel fast. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I think, I think in the UK, there are less than like 200 designers total. Yeah. You know, uh, and you really can't, it's, it's, it's just such a small industry. And everyone knows each other, <laughs> you know, certainly in England. Uh, so that's all... another, uh, you know, that's another edge of kind of making sure that everybody in it is relatively cool is yeah. that uh, if you are really weird or really mean and screw a couple people over, well, everybody knows. Well, you won't anywhere else. You'd exactly. Solo. Exactly. You know, and that, I, I've known people that that's happened to, you know, where they've worked for companies here in England and they've left or been forced out and then they've not had any more work in the industry. Right. Because of their own actions. To yeah. clarify. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's a great industry. I love it. It's the best job I've ever had. Uh, it's a lot of hard work. Like I said, it takes up all of my free time as well as my actual working hours. Right. My working hours are usually um, 8, uh, 8 a.m. I start mm-hmm. and then I finish at 6 p.m. Uh, and that's on a slow day. Most days I'll do eight till eight or eight till nine. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing the core rulebook for Carbon, uh, I was doing nine a.m. to nine p.m. seven days a week, wow. and I did that for two months. Uh, that was a lot of work. Yeah, I can imagine. But it's worth it because I love it. That's awesome, man. All right, I think it's a good place to end. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely um, interested in kind of talking with you about future stuff. We'll be keeping an eye on your projects, obviously. I'm, like, you know, invested at this point. So well, whatever we, goes up on Kickstarter, do, let me know. Yeah, we're going to do another Kickstarter in about two months, I think. Um, okay. It was meant to be now, but the world fell apart. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also, like, I'm sure that people don't have their, you know, 120 bucks to throw around on, you know, limited yeah, editions with bonus dice and stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, if, when we do a Kickstarter, it will have to be digital only. And yeah. then perhaps do another Kickstarter for the same thing later on in the year or next year mm. for physical copies. Yeah. Um, you know, at a, a slightly reduced rate or something. I don't know how we'll do it, but um, that's coming soon. And I do want to come back and talk about that when we do it. Uh, yeah. That's actually being written by Ben Counter, uh, who's a New York Times bestselling author. Oh, wow. Uh, Okay. And he wrote uh, the Manhattan source book for Carbon Twenty Ninety Five. He's writing us a whole, a whole new uh, adventure path. That's gonna be awesome. And yeah, that'll be a good uh, time to come back. And we originally we're hoping to talk about some like physical production and distribution stuff, but I'm trying <laughs> not to take your entire back half of your day here. Yeah, um, I mean, so uh, we can talk about that in the future. Well, uh, it's pretty simple. Um, you have the uh, the way it works in the industry is you pretty much ask everyone else who they use as a mm-hmm. printer, uh, and then you use them, and you ask how much they cost. Uh, if you've sold less than a thousand copies, if you're getting less than a thousand printed, it's cheaper to uh, use a print-on-demand service, oh, wow. um, such as the one from Drive for RPG. But once you kind of hit that one thousand, which is kind of the minimum orders. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes cheaper to print and, and at higher quality to print at an actual yeah. printers um, 
that's used print on demand. And you just ask around. If you're in Europe, um, you can email me or message me or whatever on a Dragon Soda Games, anything. You can contact us and ask who we use and we'll tell you. It's actually printed in the front of our books. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use them and they're great. And you just, you essentially, you tell them how many you need, how fast you need it, and then you give them the print files, which you would have to get, uh, usually you have to get a graphic artist to uh, put those mm-hmm. together. I did it myself uh, in the past, but we used uh, some professionals on on Carbon because I didn't want to mess it up. Yeah. yeah. But that's essentially it. And then they ship it to uh, your filmer partner who ships it out to your backers. That's something we had a lot of trouble with. Uh, yeah. As I'm sure everyone is aware, we had a lot of trouble with uh, fulfillment partners, and we've gone through about four of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, we found one who's really good now. You know, anyone who orders from our online store will tell you they get their books fast, yeah. and they're still shipping now, despite everything. They're still shipping. Essential um, business. Yeah, well, it's an essential business here in the UK, and they're a very small company, so they can actually maintain social distancing. Oh, okay. Um, very safely they can they can be very far apart from each other and not have any contact and they're still working they're still shipping our books and then uh the fulfillment is fantastic you know pretty much uh even if you're in the us we're in the uk it takes less than two weeks to get to you wow that's pretty good yeah it's not bad yeah i mean it definitely has been like again just talking about communication like um as you said, like it's, you've been really public with, oh, okay, we're having this issue that we've identified and, you know, everybody's let us know about it. So we're doing this to resolve it. And yeah. like, I, I, you've done a really good job of that. Well, sure. I mean, there's no benefit to keeping customers in the dark. And yet so many people do. So many people do because they think it makes them look better. Did I have a CD that I paid for from Jeremy soul mm-hmm. who did uh this is like a famous. Oh yeah. I know the thing. Jeremy. So, um, yeah. And, <laughs> I know that story quite. He's well. been completely silent on it for like ten years. He did an in- no. He did an interview last year, right? Yeah. yeah. And he said, "We're not aware of anyone that has any problems with this." <laughs> he said, "Everyone has contacted us. We've arranged a refund for, which has been a minimal people. Uh, there's yeah. no problems." He said, "There are problems." <laughs> yeah, it's just you know it's five years behind expected. Um, it's totally fine to say, you know what? I'm like a weird artist. This is taking me forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hold on. Let me check this. Uh, I'm trying to see estimated delivery, September, 2013. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So it's seven years late. Uh-huh. We say in current interviews, there's no problem. Uh-huh. No yeah, it was upset. originally, uh, funded. Oh, wait, why doesn't it show me that? Um, I mean, it was, this was, uh, let me see if I can go back to some of these early updates. I mean, to be fair, he has 52 updates on it. But, like, the I mean, updates are like, hey, I'm thinking about it. Well, hang on. When when was it released? When um, was the campaign? 2013? Uh, yeah, I'm going to... I think it was 2012, originally. We have 64 updates. Oh, boy. And we we were in January 2019. And it's uh, okay, yeah, it was... Um, it's now March... Uh, uh, April of 2020. Yeah. So we've done uh, like, pretty much. So the original launch was March 13th, 2013. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we we've done 64 updates in a year. <laughs> All right. I take it back. 
I mean, that's just, I, it was more than I expected him. I expected him to have one update every five years or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they, they have a recent one, but it, it is, I mean, it really is like, hey, I finished writing a song. And it's like, dude. <laughs> the problem is when people aren't transparent. Because yeah. people will forget. If you say, I wrote something, it wasn't good enough, so I'm not going to publish it, I'm rewriting it for you guys. Most people will be fine with that. Yeah. If you just say, guys, hold on, it's coming, they're going to say, when? What's going on? Why are you keeping us in the dark? Right. Because people are understanding, right? When, when people back you on Kickstarter, they're not there to buy a product. They're there to help you make it. Right. They're part of the journey. And if you don't take them along for the ride, they're going to be upset because they're, they're backing people back on Kickstarter to help creators make things. Right. People don't use right. it as a shop. It's not Amazon. Yeah. And it's, I think um, a really so, good example for that is like double fine that they actually literally made documentaries about their progress of how they made this Kickstarter stuff. And yeah. they've been more successful on Kickstarter than they have in the general marketplace. Right. We're more successful on Kickstarter than we are right. in the market. Like most of our sales have come from Kickstarter. Simple as that. Um, and because people want this game to be made and they see our passion for it and they're like, yeah, let's get, let's do this together. When you yeah. cut off the backers, you're suddenly not doing it together. And it very much is uh, a, a community experience. Yeah. And it's just so easy to just tell people what's happening. And it, yeah, it, it is <laughs> like literally it's what you do when you go home and talk to your you know, yeah. spouse or your friend about what's going on or whatever. Yeah, it's like you tell them what's happening. Why not exactly. tell, tell the backers? Yeah. They're part of it. They're part of the yeah. journey. As the far backers as I really can... almost are like a publisher almost. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the backers are a part of Dragon Set Games. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they've paid for everything. Right. Um, they're part of it. They're part of the design. They're part of the process. They're part of the passion. Why I would keep them in the dark, there's no point. There's no point to it. Um, but some publishers do, and some creators do, and they try and do that to save face. But I think it, in the end, it's not um, fair to your backers to do that. I would rather look bad and keep people in the loop than uh the trial a lot of those a lot of the people that are like try to hide communication or whatever are they typically don't have a second success story right Mm -hmm. or or it's less than the previous one right um Um, i mean we had to delay a project a few years ago because what because the rights are on it are transitioned part way through you know uh uh you know, they discovered they were they were trans and started transitioning, and so we delayed the project. And we, and we told everyone this. We said, you know, this is why people were very accepting. Of course they were. Yeah. But a lot of publishers would say, oh, there's a delay. You know, something like that. Yeah. Um, but it's just, I mean, they're part of it. Our backers are part of Dragon Soda Games as much as I am. Um, they've put more into it than I have. I have financially, you know. Um, because of course I don't have enough. <laughs> I, don't have, yeah, I think it made 143,000 pounds on Kickstarter. Yeah, that's more than I've earned over the last five years. Right, like a lot more. Um, but yeah, 
yeah, I, I, I mean, um, just if everyone was just honest and open, I think they'd be a lot more successful and people would be a lot happier. And that is a big thing, especially in, um, you know, like we were talking about these projects that you work on for, you know, at whatever amount of time, and then it just never ends up coming out. Like, um, a lot of like video game studios are notorious for shit canning stuff that people are super excited about EA. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, people are less than forgiving because the company doesn't say, Hey, this game, it just, it just sucked. It didn't come together. Like it wasn't working, which is usually what the problem is. The thing is, the reasons are almost always good reasons. Yeah. Like, if someone's put a lot of money and time into something, and then they never release it, there's a good reason for it. Right. If you just told people, the majority would understand. Yeah. You know? I mean, look at, um, you know, like, you know, again, talking about big delays from Cyberpunk, from all of Ubisoft. um, And then now that the... um, you know, coronavirus has been going around, even more stuff has been delayed mm-hmm. because it's just like, you know, it's just not feasible for us to give up on all of our physical sales, yeah. you know, um, and just rely fully on digital. Well, um, we, we can't are... uh, print anything at the moment. We've right. still got stretch rewards to fulfill for the campaign. Yeah. Um, well, we can't print them, <laughs> you know? And it's like... The, the, the factory shut down. But we've told you right. this. Right. You know, the last three updates, we, we've mentioned this and we spoke about it. Um, and every time I get new news, I tell people, I tell, I tell you guys. Yeah. Because why wouldn't I? <laughs> well, it is actually in your best interest to just say like, okay, look, here's the problem. Because mm-hmm. in a way too, if people are super mad about it or whatever, okay, look, it's not my fault. Here's what happened. We're working on it. And I'll let you know when we get an update. Well, you know sometimes I mean? it, it's yeah. in your best interest in all directions, I guess. I mean, sometimes it is our fault, you know, like it was right. our fault that the, the shipping got messed up at, at the beginning because we didn't right. uh, we didn't know about shipping and we did we didn't uh, we trusted some people we shouldn't have trusted, and that was that was our fault, and we admitted that. Um, we said, you know, um, we're new to this, so we apologize, and yeah. people were, people forgave us um, because, of course, how would we know uh, these things so early on? Um, but yeah, yeah, I think we can wrap it up there for sure. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, definitely interested in talking to you more in the future as more stuff comes out. We might be trying to, um, get you to cringe through like me DMing a cyber, uh, carbon (laughs) game. Well, I'm definitely up for a a one shot at the very least. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've been really fun characters. Yeah. We've been having that typical like nightmare scenario of like. Uh, you know, multiple people say, oh, hey, we're all interested in playing. And then, like, two of them just never are heard from again. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, so, cool. uh, that's good playing yeah. a tabletop game. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Something I've been dealing with my entire adult life here. I like um, the saying that the hardest enemy in any tabletop game is uh, the player's schedules. Right. Uh, so, for sure, I've definitely been experiencing some of that. So, we'll see uh, where that goes. But, um yeah, for sure. I mean, check out more of your stuff um, online, obviously, with uh, Studio Circa, C-E-R-C-A. Sorry. Yep, that's right. And then uh, Dragon Turtle. You can spell that on your own, people. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, more ideal for them to go through you directly rather than any kind of specific storefront. Um, I, you can actually only buy them through us. Yeah. Uh, the, the hard books, the, the physical books, you can only right, buy them through right, us right. at the moment. 
because Amazon are not accepting new shipments here in the UK. Smart. Yeah, so well, you can only buy them from us. Uh, so if you want a physical copy, uh, it's dragonsoldgames.com. Right. Um, there are only 61, I think 61 limited edition books left. I got to tell you too, those are awesome. They're really nice, aren't they? Yeah, I really they're like a, them. They're a black cloth cover with uh-huh. gold foil. Um, and they just look stunning. They feel great. Um, if there wasn't uh, a pandemic going on, I would go to our shipping center and sign all the ones that are left. But I can't do that because that is not essential travel. Well, yeah, you, A, can't go there, and then, B, probably don't want to kill, uh, you know, 2% of the people that are buying your books or whatever. Yeah, exactly, right? So I can't... It's not good for business. I would sign them. I would sign them if I could. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, you can uh, check out more of our stuff, obviously, at uh, Mammoth Games, Inc. Um, so we're at mammothgamesinc.com, Mammoth Games, Inc. on all of your uh, social medias. Um, obviously, you can find us on pretty much any of the podcasting apps. Um, this has gone on longer than I was hoping, but, uh, I think it was a really interesting call both with the recording and before. So, uh, yeah, definitely interested in seeing you again and, uh, we'll just kind of play it by ear. I think we'll have some, some stuff soon. Thanks a lot. It's great to have on. Um, I'm sure I've given you plenty of content. You can cut out to make a concise interview. No, we don't do cuts. Oh no. I wish it's going to add in. I'm going to add in like (laughs) 10 minute pauses. Yeah, what I like when I listen to a podcast, I like when they add in, when they leave in the awkward pauses. Just the total radio silence. Yeah, for like two seconds. If you can add one of those after every sentence. Yeah, this is going to be a five-hour podcast. (laughs) All right, Uh, great speaking to you. Yeah, thanks.